0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The Six
1: Wives are just such a fascinating story. It is like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives – because
0: it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England. Everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed
2: him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded.
0: Died. Divorced.
1: Beheaded.
2: Survived.
0: When it comes to juicy historical sagas, they don't come much better than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch, But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? Hello and welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. I'm Ellie Cawthorne, and with the help of expert historians, I'll be peeling back those layers of myth-making to take a fresh look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and the history of England. In this episode... We're delving into one of the most disastrous marriages in history that was pretty much consigned to the dustbin before it had even begun. But although Henry VIII's brief marriage to Anne of Cleves has been written off as a comedy anecdote, it would go on to shape the entire life of the woman involved and ruin the reputations of others. Joining me as usual to offer Henry's perspective on things is historian Dr Tracy Borman, Joint Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private
2: Lives of the Tudors. Henry should have been ruled by the head with his marriage to Anne of Cleves. Here was the making of a wonderful queen, a successful queen. So Henry really should have learned his lesson, use your head, not your heart.
0: And to give us the lowdown on the woman who would become wife number four, this episode, Tracy and I are joined by Dr Elizabeth Norton, a historian and author whose books include The Lives of Tudor Women.
1: Anne of Cleves is Henry VIII's fourth wife and she's probably one of the less well remembered of his wives. She's certainly not the most famous Anne that married Henry VIII, but she's really really important. She's actually his most traditional marriage. It is the only time in Henry VIII's life that he actually goes out and seeks a diplomatic bride, a foreign bride. She's the only one of the six wives that he hasn't met before marriage, something that is a bit of a problem as it turns out. But She's so significant because she is this real attempt at a traditional marriage and it it goes so horribly
0: wrong. I think it's fair to say that in the popular imagination, at least, Anne of Cleves has gone down as a bizarre blip in Henry's marital history or the Flanders mare, the punchline of a joke. But that's not the story you're going to hear in this episode.
1: We are absolutely not going to hear the story of Anne of Cleves as a comedy anecdote because she isn't. She was a real woman a woman who was taken from her home and from her family to marry a man who very much did not have a good reputation on the marriage market at that point. And actually, what I want to bring out today really is the human side to the story and just how Anne felt, as much as we can surmise in the sources, and how she survived because she is very much a survivor.
0: In our last episode, we left Henry mourning his third wife, Jane Seymour, who died suddenly and unexpectedly, shortly after giving birth to their son, Prince Edward. And as we've heard before in this series, when it came to moving on, Henry VIII didn't need much encouragement. And it wasn't long after Jane's death before he began the search for wife number four.
2: Well, Henry in public made a show of not even wanting to think about it because he was still so grief stricken over Jane Seymour. But in private, he was a very merry widower and he loved to be in love. So he absolutely sanctioned the search to begin. And Thomas Cromwell, his faithful chief minister, was head of that search. And there was a a more dynastic political reason as well for the search apart from romance because Henry was a romantic yes he married six times but I think that's the triumph of hope over experience but there was a political reason behind wife number four he needed a spare heir yes he had finally got a son but in this age of high infant mortality you can't rest on your laurels he needed another son in the royal nursery
0: Henry's last two wives had been from English families at his court. But after alienating so much of Europe through his break with Rome, the king had a good incentive to look abroad for his next bride.
2: He needed allies. So Henry was really in crisis at this time. His people had started to rebel against him with the pilgrimage of grace. His religious reforms were really ramping up and large swathes of the population were firmly against them. So, Henry needed allies to bolster his position as King of England, but he also needed allies against the might of Catholic Europe, against France and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. He found, or rather Thomas Cromwell found, the ideal ally in Cleves in what's part of modern Germany. Because Cleves was a region that had also rejected papal authority, like England. So in Cromwell's eyes, this made it ideal for alliance. It would really bolster Henry's flagging reformation. So what was happening in the duchy
0: in the 1530s? Cleves is, in Anne's time,
1: absolutely tiny. Germany, as we know, it doesn't exist in the period. It's made up of a number of very small duchies or principalities, small states, all ostensibly under the authority of the Holy Roman Empire. Although actually, for the most part, they they bump along quite well by themselves. They form alliances. They're pretty much independent. So Cleves is a duchy. And Anne's father is the Duke of Cleves. Cleves is actually really about as high as it will go sort of politically. It's quite an important state in Germany, albeit it's not one of the bigger ones. As Tracy said, Cleves has rejected the Pope, although largely has remained Catholic. But they are closely allied with some of the Protestant states in Germany, including particularly Saxony. So Anne is raised in this absolutely tiny dukedom. But she is very, very high ranking. She'll be aware of her rank. So she has two sisters and a brother, and they're all raised to be quite close to each other, particularly Anne and her youngest sister, Amelia.
0: Cleves wasn't the only European state to have repudiated the Pope at this time. So why did Cromwell's search land on this relatively small fry duchy?
2: Well, partly it was about the availability of eligible brides. Also, this was really Cromwell driving it and he judged Cleves to be you know perfect candidate there were parallels because yes England had rejected papal authority but it wasn't yet a protestant country that sort of notion of protestantism came in uh, later and so that was a mirror reflection really of Cleves and also I think we have to say that Not everybody wanted to ally themselves with England, and particularly with Henry VIII. Now, Christina of Denmark famously quipped when asked if she would marry Henry VIII. She said if she had two heads, she would put one of them at Henry's disposal. Ouch! So, finding a willing bride narrowed the field, I think. But
0: while England and Cleves were united in their rejection of papal authority there were some major cultural differences.
1: So Cleves is, unsurprisingly, very, very German. It is not as cosmopolitan as Henry VIII likes to think that his kingdom is. I mean, particularly the English court is, it follows the French fashions, languages are spoken. So um, Henry, of course, is fluent in French and other languages. Cleves is much more provincial in the period and can only speak German, she's not taught any languages, The ideas about educating women, which have become quite fashionable in England and other parts of Europe, they haven't reached Cleves. So Anne is not given any great education. She'll be taught needlework. She's not even taught how to sing or dance, actually, and that is a major difference to the English court. Henry VIII would have an expectation that a highborn woman would be able to entertain him or to take part in entertainments with him. You know, it's a common interest. It's quite a... staunch upbringing in many respects. Um, And particularly Anne is recorded by the English ambassadors as being kept at her mother's elbow. She's raised very close to her mother. She's not allowed to mix with men. She's not really able to mix sort of with wider people, really. You know, she is very much within the Ducal Palace with her mother,
0: with her siblings. It's quite a small existence. The envoy Nicholas Wotton reported that Anne's mother was, quote, very loath to suffer her to depart from her. But we can only imagine what the prospect of that separation was like for Anne, 24 years old at the time. Leaving her home and family behind for a foreign court with unknown customs might have been an exciting prospect, or it might have been an intimidating one. But Cromwell knew that a bride from Cleves would come with the added bonus of a very useful diplomatic alliance because Anne's elder sister was married to John Frederick, Elector of Saxony, and one of the heads of the Schmalkaldic League, a defence alliance of Protestant German states. Cromwell understood the value of such a connection when so much of Europe stood against Henry, and that made him even more keen to sell the prospect
2: of the match to the king. So Cromwell when he first mentions Anne of Cleves to Henry he does the political sell about how good an ally Cleves would be all the reasons to go for that but what Cromwell i think didn't account for was that with his royal master at least a degree of love had to be involved or attraction it wasn't all about politics henry wants to know what anne looks like and why not because you know this isn't just politics for henry so Cromwell talks in general terms about how she's very well spoken of and all her sort of physical attributes. But Henry says, well, I haven't heard her very well spoken of in that respect. So he's challenging Cromwell on this. He really you know, doesn't want to make a mistake here. So it is decided that in the sort of Tudor equivalent of internet dating, Holbein is going to be sent over to take Anne's likeness, to paint her her profile pic, if you like, and Henry will then see what he's getting himself into or reject the idea out of hand.
0: Holbein was one of the most accomplished painters of the age and his portraits of various royal figures of the time are still the most iconic images of the Tudors that we have today. But when Holbein was tasked with travelling to meet Anne and take her likeness, he butted up against a few obstacles. Because actually in Cleves,
1: they make quite a lot of difficulties about Holbein having access to Anne. The English ambassadors have struggled to get access to Anne. In fact, they complain that when she does appear, she's wearing a monstrous
0: habit so they can barely see what she looks like. But this wasn't necessarily a plot by those in Cleves to conceal Anne's appearance from her potential husband. In fact, the English ambassador Christopher Mont reported to Cromwell that, quote, Every man praiseth the beauty of the said lady, as well for the face as for the whole body, above all other ladies excellent. Instead, the issues of access may have had more to do with culture and custom. A lot of this is political when
1: it is suggested that... Princess Mary perhaps might become a bride for Anne's brother William at one stage. Actually, Henry is very resistant to the idea that Mary's portrait would be sent because she is higher ranking and it's not the done thing. They should just want to marry his daughter. So I think it's partly that includes that, you know, actually William is high-born. William Duke of Cleves, her brother, and is saying, my sister is high-born enough.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed.
0: But eventually, Holbein did gain access. The remarkable picture he painted of Anne still survives. And it's a striking and arresting portrait.
1: So, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It survives in a number of versions. It shows Anne in gorgeous German dress and very, very Germanic. You can tell exactly where she is from from the dress, but it is very elaborate, very gorgeous fabrics. And what's really interesting about the portrait is she stares out at us, straight out of the canvas in a way that generally only men are painted. When we think about Henry VIII and we think about his famous portrait, he stands, you know, staring straight out, but Anne does this. And it looks very, very bold and not quite what we'd expect of Anne, really, particularly what we've heard of her upbringing. So it's a, it's a really, really beautiful portrait.
0: Gazing at Holbein's painting today, it's very tempting to feel like you're getting a glimpse of the real Anne of Cleves. But is that true? Well, the answer to that depends on Holbein's motivations in painting it. Was it to provide the king with a true likeness of Anne so he could decide for himself whether or not she was an alluring bride? Or was it to apply a flattering lens in order to help Cromwell sell the match to Henry and secure an alliance?
1: Nobody ever criticises Holbein and says that it's a bad likeness. So Henry VIII never says this portrait doesn't look like Anne. But I think it probably is painted to be quite flattering. I think it almost certainly does resemble Anne, but I think Holbein has picked her most flattering angle and he's painted her at her best. So he's perhaps doing his master something of a disservice in doing what he usually does for his clients and making sure they look really good in their
0: portraits. And it's fair to say that when Henry saw the portrait,
2: he was impressed. I think his response was ding dong, actually. He was very impressed with the portrait of Anne of Cleves, thought she was incredibly attractive, and immediately agreed that the marriage negotiations should go full steam ahead. So it had a very, very definite impression on him. Now, I would just like to put in a word because... You know, it does rather annoy me that nobody's talking (laughs) about what Henry looked like at this stage. And he was far from being an oil painting. Frankly, by now we're 1539. He has gained a colossal amount of weight in the three years since his jousting accident. His waist has expanded to 50 inches. It's said that three of the biggest men at court could fit inside the king's doublet and we don't talk enough about that we just talk about Anne of Cleves and her physical attributes or lack thereof
0: so this was a bit of a shot in the dark on both sides it might seem wild to us today to marry someone that you'd never seen in real life but this was fairly standard
2: procedure for marriage brokering at the time It was entirely traditional and this happened all the time. Diplomatic marriages were forged quite often without the people involved being present at all. And there was marriage by proxy. The actual ceremony would take place with a representative from the king or or whoever it might be. And this was absolutely par for the course. Marriage was made for politics, not for love. But as I've said, Henry liked to have his cake and eat it. He wanted the romance as well. Because of how Anne's story played out,
0: over the years since, there's inevitably been a lot of discussion about what she looked like, as we've already touched on in this episode. But what we don't hear nearly so much about is what Anne was like as a person. Can we deduce much from the historical record about her character in these early years? As she was being shipped off as a bride to a stranger in a foreign land.
1: We do know quite a bit about Anne's character and everything that we know is is really favorable. She was difficult for the English ambassadors to speak to, but what they saw of her they liked. And actually we get a real insight into her character on her journey to England. And this obviously takes place at the end of 1539 and it's a really slow journey. She goes overland. So Henry actually had a romantic view of taking her by sea, but actually They vetoed this in Cleves. They were worried about her complexion on a long sea voyage. So she travelled across Europe. And we've got lots of accounts because, of course, this is a moment that the English were really able to take stock of their new queen. And everything's favorable. So she starts to learn English immediately. Henry sends a woman to instruct her. So she's willing to learn. And actually, the English ambassadors have said, she doesn't know very much, but she's intelligent. We can see this. She's going to be fine. But she's also aware that she's going to have to live with Henry. And actually, she asks at one stage on the journey to be taught a card game that the king likes. So they'll have something to do together, which again, I mean, we don't see this from the other queens. It's real insight. She will dine with the English gentleman, which is not something that was permitted in Cleves. Also, when her ship is delayed at Calais for bad weather and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and the English are getting very concerned because they know that Henry is impatient. They actually approach her and say, you know, would you mind being ready to leave at really a moment's notice? Um, We'll just sail as soon as the weather changes. And she says, yep, that's fine. I'll do that. She gets in her ship. She then travels through England in appallingly bad weather when, again, her escorts say, you know, we really do need to keep moving. Is that okay? And, again, she just says, that's fine. Everybody likes Anne of Cleves. She is kindly. She is willing to please. But she's not a pushover as well. And we will see this later in her story.
0: The Anne of Cleves we meet on her journey over looks like someone who had the makings of a good Tudor queen affable, amenable and willing to put in the work. Unfortunately, pretty much as soon as the royal couple met, things started to go horribly wrong.
2: This is when really it sets the seal on the doom that is their marriage. So Henry fancies himself as this chivalrous knight and so he has it all planned. Rather than wait for Anne to arrive in London, he makes his way down to Rochester to meet her on her way back up. And he rides down there in disguise now this is kind of chivalrous code so the idea is that your true love will recognise you anywhere so even though he's in disguise you know Anne will pick him out from a hundred men and so he and his entourage come come kind of bursting into to Anne's chamber and he strides up to her and kisses her on the lips and she thinks who the hell is this and it is really affronted the one account has her slapping him round the face you know this, who is this man And then he takes off his mask and she realises too late that she has fatally insulted her husband to be the King of England. Now, I think it's this encounter really that is the end of their marriage. I don't think it's as the history books would have us believe that it's, you know, Anne and she's the ugly wife and I'm quoting there that she repels Henry physically I think it is just this very first disastrous encounter where Anne just doesn't get it. She doesn't get this kind of courtly etiquette. And that puts Henry off and it puts him off forever.
1: It is an absolutely disastrous meeting. I mean, this is the moment really where Anne really should have been given Henry's portrait. But from her point of view, of course, she's met so many new people. Over the past few weeks, she's on her rest day. This is New Year's Eve. She's supposed to be resting. And this is the one day that she's not travelling. And, you know, this man arrives and starts being over-familiar. You can sort of see her point, albeit that actually had she been better educated, she probably would have been aware that perhaps she should look out for the king in disguise. Certainly, it's happened before in English royal history. Henry the VI, for example, dresses as a squire when his fiance Margaret of Anjou, arrives. And she also doesn't
0: recognise him. It seems unfair that no one briefed Anne in advance or even just gave her a quiet warning of what was to come.
1: Absolutely. And I mean,
0: conversely,
1: of course, is, you know, I mean, really, Henry should be quite pleased that his wife, his future wife, is unhappy about being embraced by a strange man. But it doesn't it doesn't play out like that. So I, I agree with Tracy. I think this is the moment when his illusions are absolutely shattered. He has believed himself to be in love with her. And it just goes wrong. But from Anne's point of view, I'd suspect she doesn't realise quite how wrong it's gone. They can't speak to each other. They have to use an interpreter because, of course, she speaks German and he doesn't speak German. And although she's had some English tuition, I mean, she's clearly not fluent by this stage. She still needs an interpreter in six months' time. So I think she probably isn't aware of just how disastrously the meeting has gone. But he comes back in and he behaves in a loving manner to her and, and they speak through their interpreter. But he forgets to give her his New Year's gift, which is a major
0: sign that it has gone wrong. But while Anne may not have realised the extent of her blunder, Henry's dreams of a romantic love match were instantly crushed.
2: I think Henry feels a mixture of sort of wounded pride, of disappointment, I think he'd fancied himself to be in love with Anne. He'd never met her, but he loved the look of her from her portrait. And he had all of these romantic notions. And then Anne had so bitterly disappointed him. She fell so far short of what he was expecting. And so, yeah, I I think there was an awful lot of disappointment on Henry's part. Absolutely. I mean, I think that...
1: Nobody says that Anne is ugly, and I think that's always worth really bringing out. Henry was famously supposed to have said he'd been sent a Flanders mare instead of a woman, so a horse instead of a woman. It's not contemporary. There's no contemporary record that he said that. He does complain very bitterly about her appearance. He says she's not as described. You know, he clearly doesn't find her attractive, doesn't find her beautiful, although doesn't punish Holbein. So her appearance is a bit of a mystery. And I feel bad about picking over her appearance, of course, because as Tracy said, Henry VIII is no oil painting himself. What we do know about Anne's appearance, we have the French ambassador, who's often very, very blunt, and of course, is not in favour of the marriage. And he says she is older than described. There's talk about having marks. There are large numbers of complaints about her dress. So her brother has paid for her to have a very fine suite of dresses because, of course, she's becoming a queen. But they're all in the German style. So as far as the English are concerned, they're a bit frumpy. They're a bit out of date. They're not the stylish French dresses that the English court would expect. So although she appears very richly dressed, as far as the English are concerned, she doesn't look very good. But There's nothing really that suggests that she was ugly or unattractive. And certainly she will later assert that she's more attractive than Catherine Parr, Henry's sixth wife. And people aren't disagreeing. So, again, I think it is Henry's illusions being shattered, but also just a lack of attraction. She's the only wife that he hasn't met. There's no
2: chemistry. And Henry made no secret of his displeasure. The sources tell us in great detail about Henry's reaction. So as soon as he's made his excuses and and left the room, he goes to find Cromwell, of course, the architect of this marriage, and he shouts, I like her not. So poor old Cromwell, you could imagine, is horror struck because he knows he has made a fatal mistake in pushing forward this marriage. And Henry makes absolutely no secret of being horrified at the prospect of having to, as he put it, put his neck in the yoke and go forward and actually marry Anne, because they're not yet married. And Henry says to Cromwell, just get me out of it. Whatever it takes, get me out of this marriage. If Henry
0: was so unhappy with the match, why didn't he just bail out of the marriage at this stage before the deal was sealed?
2: Because he couldn't, because Thomas Cromwell had been instrumental in drawing up the marriage contract. Thomas Cromwell was probably the world's most famous lawyer. There weren't going to be any loopholes there. So Henry really had no choice. The marriage contract was as good as a marriage ceremony. He had to go through with it. And can you imagine being in Thomas Cromwell's shoes? He knows he has made the worst mistake of his career. With
0: no way out of Cromwell's watertight marriage arrangements the reluctant Henry had no choice regardless of how he felt about Anne he'd have to go
2: through with the ceremony so the wedding ironically is the most lavish, the most magnificent of all Henry VIII's weddings. Now, given it's going to be the shortest marriage, I think that is actually quite ironic. Uh, It takes place at Greenwich. There, There are vivid descriptions of what the bride and groom wear. Henry's clearly gone to town, of course. Lots of cloth of gold, cloth of silver, glittering jewels, a magnificent court. And to the untrained eye... This is one of the most happy moments of Henry's entire reign. Neither Henry nor Anne give any clue that there is anything amiss.
0: And after the wedding ceremony, a bigger challenge lay ahead. The wedding night.
1: You can't have a valid marriage without consummation. The couple have to have sex. And so the couple are put to bed together. And this is really the first moment that they've been properly alone together. And bear in mind, they can't speak the same language. So there's not a lot of sort of pillow talk going on. Henry, by his own account, feels Anne's breasts and he feels her belly. And he just can't go any further. That's it. He doesn't have the courage to continue, as he says. He will claim that he can—he doesn't think that she's a virgin because she doesn't feel like a virgin should when he feels her naked body. He's no great judge of virgins, of course, as you will hear from his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. But it really, he just, he doesn't find her any more attractive without her clothes on, and he just can't do it. And, of course, Henry, there have been rumours that Henry has been impotent intermittently since his marriage to Anne Boleyn. And it takes Jane Seymour a really long time to get pregnant. So, again, the problem looks very much like it's on Henry's side, but, of course, it's Anne who gets the blame.
0: Did whispers of this unsuccessful first night together slip out from between the royal bedsheets?
2: Well, it is known amongst Anne's ladies and they they sort of gently question her about what took place on the wedding night. And indeed, Henry and Anne sleep together, literally sleep together, during various nights to come. And Anne famously says to her ladies, you know, he kisses me goodnight and then in the morning, he bids me good morning. One of her ladies says, there's going to have to be more than that. Otherwise, we'll never have a Duke of York. So Anne seems... Certainly, if you take her words at face value, as something of an innocent in the ways of marriage. But I do completely agree with Elizabeth in that, actually, I think the fault lies with Henry. Yes, he makes a big show of being repelled by Anne. He couldn't bring himself to do it. You know, there had been many, many rumours of impotence. And Anne Boleyn, during her trial, there was talk that she had said that the king lacked puissance or power in the marriage bed. So I think with Henry and Anne of Cleves, he was protesting just a little bit too much.
0: But while Henry may not have been won over by his new bride, other important figures at court were, including the king's two daughters. Anne forms a very close bond to both of Henry's
1: daughters, actually. She's very close in age to Mary, so it's not a mother-daughter relationship. And of course, Mary had known her mother very well. But they are on friendly terms and they will remain on friendly terms throughout their lifetimes, in fact. I would say the, the relationship is somewhat sisterly, actually, in that they visit each other, they give each other gifts. They seem quite close. And of course, they're both two very high ranking women at court. They don't have that many people that they can interact as equals with. So I think it's quite a it's a friendly relationship. And Anne, of course, needs friends at the English court. With Elizabeth, it's a different relationship because Elizabeth is a child and she probably doesn't remember her mother. She's not really had a mother figure in her life. And And, of course, Jane Seymour, her stepmother, died several years ago. She's been raised by servants, but she doesn't have this mother figure. And I think Anne of Cleves fills that gap to some extent. Anne of Cleves famously leaves Mary her best jewel in her will and Elizabeth her second best jewel, which, again, just shows this bond between them.
0: Despite the good connections Anne made at court, the one that really mattered was with her husband a husband who was showing barely more enthusiasm
2: for the match now that the marriage was underway. There are two things running in parallel here. There's Henry's desperation to get out of the match. There's Cromwell's desperation to make it work. And so Cromwell, via intermediaries, sort of advises Anne of Cleves on how to be more physically attractive to Henry, how to tempt him into consummating this marriage and to, quote, stir up lust. But it fails spectacularly. Clearly, Henry is not for turning. From Henry's perspective, he is clutching at straws now. You know, what on earth can he do? He can't can't really execute Anne. Not going to work. Can he find evidence to get him out of this alliance? And what he seizes on is... Evidence of a pre contract so that Anne has already been betrothed before. And he really goes to town with this. This is the thing that's going to get him out of jail free. If Anne has a pre contract, that contract was never broken, it's happy days for Henry.
0: All of this is sounding fairly familiar. Henry digging around in the past to find evidence from his wife's former life that could be used to dissolve the marriage. But it was a strategy that the king knew worked. Just look at his annulment from Catherine of Aragon. Could similar tactics work their magic once again with Anne of Cleves? So what exactly do we know about this pre-contract of Anne's?
1: Unsurprisingly for a woman of her class, Anne had been betrothed in childhood. and I mean, that's really, really common. Princess Mary has been betrothed many times in childhood. Childhood betrothals rarely lead to adult marriage. Anne is betrothed to Frances of Lorraine. It's a good match. It simply falls away in childhood. The ambassadors of Cleves are able to produce a document to show that it's been broken off. And in fact, they do that before the wedding when asked. It's, It's stamped with a beer pot which is comes up a lot, and um, the document stamped with the beer pot. But that should be enough to say the betrothal has been broken to Francis of Lorraine. Certainly, no one will later question Francis of Lorraine's marriage to Christina of Denmark, the woman who wished she had two heads. It, you know, it is clearly a pretext, but it's quite a useful pretext as far as Henry is concerned.
0: Also playing to Henry's advantage was the fact that during those unfruitful nights sharing the royal bed,
2: his marriage to Anne had never been consummated. It plays a crucial role here. So that makes it possible for the marriage to be annulled rather than to go down the more tortuous path of divorce. So that is absolutely critical to Henry. So even if he could, he's not going to want to sleep with Anne in the full sense of the term.
0: And while Henry was scrabbling around for a way out of his marriage, there was something else going on behind the scenes that we haven't mentioned yet. And surprise, surprise, it was another woman. If you've listened to the rest of this series, you probably won't be too shocked to hear that after a brief stint of trying to make the marriage work, Henry was soon chasing after someone else.
1: Henry seemed to have attempted to make it work to some extent. He is going to bed with Anne of Cleves and does seem to have tried to consummate the marriage. At some point, however, he meets Catherine Howard, who is one of Anne's maids of honours. And of course, it's actually, we always think, you know, Henry draws his English wives from his wife's households. And, you know, that looks quite shocking. But actually, it's the best way for him to meet unmarried women because there aren't unmarried women at court unless they're in the household of his wife or his daughters. So... Anne arrives and he's suddenly got all of these women who he finds much more attractive than his wife. So Catherine Howard is a pretty teenage girl, very, very young, and she clearly turns his head and very quickly he is moving on. He's found his fifth wife. He just needs to get
0: rid of Anne. So after being sent across Europe to marry a man with a dubious reputation for disposing of wives who didn't please him... Anne now found herself in a very precarious position and she was all too well aware of that fact.
1: Anne is terrified. The English accounts would have it that Anne is fairly relaxed about the end of her marriage, that she takes it quite well. But actually, if we read the dispatches of Carl Haast, who is the ambassador from Cleves, who is advising Anne during this period, it presents a much different story. So, A lot of the circumstances around the end of the marriage are, they look like they're deliberately designed to terrify her to some extent. So she is suddenly sent to Richmond Palace on the pretext that there is plague in London and that Henry wants to keep her safe. But it's fairly obvious, I think, to everyone that that's a pretext because Henry stays in London. So Anne is at Richmond. In the middle of the night, she is roused from her bed and some ambassadors from the king have arrived to tell her that he has doubts over their marriage and will she consent to a trial of their marriage. And Anne still needs an interpreter at this point. So it's... A frightening experience for her. She screams, she cries. The ambassador from Cleves, Carl Haas, tells us that she refers to the fate of Anne Boleyn. So she clearly is well-versed in Henry's marital history, and how could she not be? So she consents to the marriage being tried to see whether it is valid or not. She is not a Catherine of Aragon. She doesn't have a child to protect. She's not going to stand up in the face of Henry's cruelty, which we've seen with Catherine of Aragon and, of course, with Anne Boleyn. So she does agree to the marriage being tried, but she clearly doesn't do it willingly and she clearly is frightened.
0: Once he had this agreement from Anne, whether willingly or not, Henry wasted no time getting the marriage dissolved. A clerical convocation was speedily assembled to hear the case for annulment and within just three days a judgment had been drawn up and signed and the annulment confirmed by Parliament. It was a much swifter process than Henry's years-long divorce battle with Catherine of Aragon. But the speed of events and the uncertainty involved must have been bewildering for Anne, especially when you remember that the whole affair was conducted through translators.
2: I think Henry could have been more, I suppose, personal with Anne of Cleves and and actually talked to her more about the predicament he was in. But that wasn't Henry's style because we've seen in previous marriages, he's very good at compartmentalising. He's already moved on. He's moved on as soon as he's met Anne of Cleves. And now, of course, there's Catherine Howard waiting in the wings. He doesn't want to be bothered with any of that. He doesn't want to sully his hands by kind of, you know, having too much to do with Anne of Cleves. So he leaves all of that rather uncomfortable business to others. And that must have made it really quite frightening for Anne of Cleves.
0: Once again, Henry used the out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach he'd deployed with Anne Boleyn, delegating others to clean up his mess, while he instead looked forward to the future. But while this may have been confusing and frightening for Anne, her decision to go along with Henry's wishes rather than contradicting him was undoubtedly a smart move.
1: She would have known that once they've reached this stage in the marriage, there's no going back. The marriage will be annulled. She can comply or she can not comply if she doesn't comply, Henry has, I mean, effectively imprisoned his first wife and sort of hounded her to death. There are rumors of poisoning. He's beheaded his second wife. So it's sensible of her to comply. What she is telling Karl Hast and um, the Germans about her is that she is frightened and that she doesn't agree with it. She actually, after the Norman is pronounced, she tells Karl Haas that she will be Henry's true wife until she dies. But she's certainly not telling Henry VIII that. So she's very sensible. And I mean, I think it's fair to say she's probably the most pragmatic of Henry's wives in her approach in that it's a very, very difficult situation because to be repudiated by your husband is about as bad as it gets for a 16th century woman, particularly a 16th century princess, because she's in a foreign country. So she makes the best of it, but it's a dangerous and difficult situation.
0: While Anne may have initially expressed resistance to her marriage being devolved, she quickly got with the programme, realising that the only way out of this difficult and dangerous situation was to do what the king wished. And regardless of what she believed in private, in public she made a great display of telling the king what he wanted to hear. She even sent her wedding ring back to Henry, quote, "'Desiring that it might be broken in pieces,' as a thing which she knew of no force nor value. So after everyone had accepted that the marriage was dissolved, why did Anne not simply return to her home in Cleves? Anne, post annulment, her position's quite difficult. She
1: actually told Karl Haas, the ambassador from Cleves, that she thought her brother would slay her if she were to return. Actually, he took it quite well. Surprisingly, he said he was glad his sister had fared no worse. He's, of course, heard of Henry VIII as well. So there was a danger that she would be returning home in disgrace because, of course, she's left Cleves as the fiancée of the King of England. She's going to become a queen, and now she isn't. There's also the point that her divorce settlement, her annulment settlement, says that she has to remain in England. That is done so that Henry can keep an eye on her, so that she won't go to Cleves and say, actually, I am Henry's true wife. We did consummate the marriage and I'm the Queen of England, which she might have done. And that would obviously compromise the legitimacy of any later marriages. And we know there are spies in her household, actually, just keeping an eye to make sure that she's towing the line.
0: But in other ways, keeping Henry on side did pay off. So...
1: Henry is thrilled that Anne agrees to the annulment because he was worried that he was going to have another Catherine of Aragon on his hands. And he, of course, is not getting the feedback about Anne's concerns and her unwillingness. He's getting the English reports, which are saying she took it quite well and he's generous with her. It's a very, very good annulment settlement. She is given the status of the king's sister. So after any woman that he later marries and his daughters, she's the next highest ranking woman in, in the kingdom. She is given two palaces to live in, Richmond Palace, which is a very nice palace, actually. It's a little bit out of date, but it's, it's a pretty good divorce settlement. She gets Bletchingley Palace. She also gets a number of other properties, some really quite impressive. And she's given a very large income to live on.
0: She does very, very well. And added to this generous property portfolio was another blessing. Anne no longer had to navigate marriage with a mercurial Henry.
2: That makes her, in my eyes, the most successful of Henry's wives. Her pragmatism has been richly rewarded. There's a palpable sense of relief in Henry. And in his relief, Henry gives her this incredibly generous settlement. And I love the fact that she later gets Hever Castle, which was Anne Boleyn's childhood home. So, you know, one of Henry's earlier wives, cast-offs, is is given to wife number four. But I think perhaps what counts more than all of that is her status. And she's welcome at court. And I think as soon as Henry has actually got rid of Anne as a wife, he comes to really appreciate how she is as a woman. And with her generous payoff and
0: enviable status as the king's sister. Anne was able to start enjoying life post-divorce. I think she has a good time.
1: Actually, her life post-Henry, during his reign, is great. She has a great time. She's got these palaces. She's got lots of money. It's said that she appears every day in a new dress. She spends, spends, spends. And she's free to do what she likes in a way that she has never been in her life before. And actually, a woman of her class wouldn't expect to have that sort of freedom. That said, nobody's going to marry her. She's Henry VIII's cast-off wife. You'd have to be a very, very bold Englishman to consider Mary Anne of Cleves and her brother is not going to arrange a new marriage for her. So she's independent, but there are certainly limits on her freedom.
0: History only really remembers Anne of Cleves for events that ultimately lasted around six months. But this was only a short snapshot in what would turn out to be a rich and fascinating life. Anne went on to have a role at the English court for the remainder of Henry's reign.
1: Anne is an active member of Henry's court. She's got really high status as a king's sister and they enjoy each other's company. Henry actually goes to visit her and dine with her on several occasions. They spend time together. So she's got a role as a member of the royal family. She remains close to Henry up to the end of his life. Actually, High inflation, because the economy is going wrong towards the end of his reign, actually means that her pension is being eroded in value. And actually, Henry VIII just tops up her money, pays some of her servants, pays for some things for her. So she still lives very, very
0: comfortably. Catherine Parr is often branded the survivor of Henry's wives. But she wasn't the only one. Anne of Cleves also outlived Henry. Although her once cushy position became less comfortable under his son by Jane Seymour, Edward.
1: After his death, it becomes more problematic because Edward VI, his son, is the son of the third wife, Jane Seymour. So it doesn't really matter to him whether Anne of Cleves is kept happy or not because it doesn't affect him if her marriage to his father is valid. There's no one it can hurt apart from his widow, Catherine Parr. We next hear about her when he attempts to marry her off to his uncle, Thomas Seymour, who is trying to marry Catherine Parr instead. And possibly because actually Anne of Cleves is known around court for being quite an expensive burden. Certainly no one is topping up her pension in Edward's reign and his government are looking very closely at her properties. She loses Richmond Palace. She loses Bletchingley Palace. And she doesn't do it without a fight. But she doesn't have the influence at court to be able to hold on to these palaces. So she's sort of pushed further from London, further from the court. She spends more time in Kent. We know that she writes a letter from my poor house at Hever, which suggests she wasn't that keen on Anne Boleyn's cast off castle. So she probably reaches the lowest ebb during Edward's reign. And actually there are rumours that she's consulted lawyers to see if she can have her annulment overturned, which means that she will get a widow's dower rather than her annulment settlement. And the widow's dower means that she can return to Cleves because that is not contingent on her staying in England.
0: It doesn't happen. But when Edward died, the time that Anne had spent as Queen building connections with Henry's family finally paid off.
1: Her fortunes very much improve when Mary becomes queen because, of course, Mary is her friend. They're very, very close. And Mary invites her to her court. And actually during Mary's coronation procession, Anne of Cleves rides with Elizabeth, who she's very, very close to, in the second chariot after the queen. So she is clearly being given the status that she's due as one of the most senior members of the royal family. Her relationship with Mary gets a bit wobbly during Mary's reign because she's suspected by the Spanish of being involved in Wyatt's rebellion. And this is a rebellion against Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. And it's one of its aims is to place Elizabeth on the throne. And of course, Anne is very, very close to Elizabeth. So it's possible there's some truth in it. It's difficult to say, but certainly Mary has heard rumours. However, Mary allows Anne to live in Chelsea Manor, which is one of the palaces she's inherited from her father in London, which gives Anne a London residence again. And it's there in 1557 that Anne dies, the last survivor of the six wives.
2: Anne was hugely influential, particularly on her younger stepdaughter, actually, Elizabeth, who spent a lot of time with Anne. And I think it's from Anne of Cleves that the future Elizabeth I learned the art of pragmatism and that would stand her in really good stead in future years. But I think as well with this queen who we so often overlook, I can't help but wonder the big what if, what if... Henry VIII had just got over himself and stayed married to Anne of Cleves. What if she had given him that spare heir? We know that his only son, Edward, doesn't live very long, doesn't make much of a mark or doesn't have chance to as king. Anne of Cleves perhaps would have given him another son. And then who knows what would have happened from Henry's perspective, I think his brief marriage to Anne of Cleves illustrates what is becoming a bit of a running theme for him in his marital history. When he is ruled by the head, things tend to go well. When he is ruled by the heart, they are a disaster. Henry should have been ruled by the head with his marriage to Anne of Cleves. Here was the making of of a wonderful queen, a successful queen. She proved that by what she did after her marriage to Henry. But instead, he was ruled by his heart. He didn't love her. He knew he never could love her. So he got rid of her. So Henry really should have learned his lesson. Use your head, not your heart. Perhaps he regretted it. Perhaps he didn't. But I think the person who definitely didn't regret it was Anne of Cleves.
0: It was an impressive afterlife to a very short-lived marriage. and an influential one.
1: Anne is the survivor of the six wives and her success is absolutely due to her character. She was willing to give up her marriage and she was willing to do it in such a way that Henry was happy with her. And she is so pragmatic. She's quite modern in that regard in that her life is quite... Unconventional, and to some extent, was quite shameful for a 16th century princess. You know, she's been dumped by her husband; she's been left in a foreign country. But actually, she does have undoubtedly the best life of the six wives. She's the happiest. She's the most independent, which is a rare quality for a 16th century woman.
0: So, if we're to throw out this frankly insulting image of Anna as a pitiable Flanders mare, how should we remember her today? We need to peel back the layers of
1: the myth and you know, she is not this ugly woman. And actually, even if she were ugly, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, actually we should move away from looking at her her appearance and actually look at her as a character. And I think that's really important with Anne. She is pragmatic. She is a survivor. She is a woman who lived a very unconventional life through no fault of her own. But actually, she made the best of a very, very difficult situation. And she made a success out of her later life. There are a lot of challenges in her later life. But actually, she spent the last 17 years of her life as an important member of the English royal family, a wealthy, independent woman, and in spite of difficulties, really is absolutely the the most successful and the luckiest of the six wives.
0: Before we finish today's episode, I wanted to add a brief postscript about one of the key players in this saga. Not a wife, but a minister, Thomas Cromwell. Because in arranging the match with Anne of Cleves, Henry's most faithful servant had royally screwed up and Henry sent him to the executioner's block shortly after. So while Anne of Cleves came out of the marriage relatively
2: unscathed, was its real victim Thomas Cromwell? The Anne of Cleves disaster has often been said to be the end of Thomas Cromwell. Because not long after, he was executed. In fact, you know, the same month as Henry married Anne of Cleves, Cromwell went to the block. But actually, it wasn't the end of Thomas Cromwell. Henry forgave Cromwell this major faux pas in arranging this disastrous marriage. And he actually made him Earl of Essex. After all of this, so Cromwell's downfall was due to something entirely different. It was a a sort of political coup by his enemies. And so it's quite good to put to bed this myth that Anne of Cleves really spelt the death of Thomas Cromwell. Next week,
0: we'll be revealing how what began as a midlife crisis for Henry ended in scandal and death. Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr. Tracy Borman and Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Elizabeth is a historian and author specialising in the Tudors. Her books include The Lives of Tudor Women. Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Anne of Cleves, then head over to our website, historyextra.com forward slash sixwives, where you can watch a brand new video with Elizabeth Norton, where she answers key questions about Henry's fourth wife. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden and Ben Hewitt. It was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Josette Reeves.